Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Hello, this is John Spear, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.guru, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Today, we have an exciting topic. Yeah, I know, every topic we share with you is exciting, but this one is, is one that's really fun for me. It's something that I've been dealing with throughout my entire medical device career that spans well over 17 years now, and that topic is this, research versus development. You're going to want to listen to this because the standard practice, the conventional wisdom around research and medical device product development, I'm going to tell you folks, it is wrong. There's nothing wrong with starting your design controls early and often in your product development efforts. Joining me today in this podcast is a familiar guest, David Amor. David is a medtech biotech consultant and mobile health entrepreneur who founded Imagineering, a company focused on remote compliance, regulatory, and quality systems consulting for larger companies and startups. David is a graduate of the prestigious Innovation Fellows Program at the University of Minnesota's Medical Device Center. David was named a top 40 under 40 medical device innovator in 2012 and a 35 under 35 entrepreneur in 2015 by Minnesota Business Magazine. David and his company, Medgineering, provide a lot of quality system services. They're based out of the Twin Cities in Minneapolis, St. Paul. They use remote model to save clients time, money, and procurement headaches. And you can visit them at medgineering.com, M-E-D-G-I-N-E-E-R-I-N-G.com. David's company also recently founded Quick Consult, and it's a great platform. You should check that out as well, myquickconsult.com. So sit back, relax, listen to why you need to focus on capturing your design controls, why your thoughts about research might, in fact, be wrong. Hello, this is John Spear, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.guru, and this is another exciting episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Today, we brought back David Moore, David's with Medgineering. David. Welcome to the show. Morning, John. Thanks for having me again. Always fun. Absolutely. Yes. So I think we promised our listeners the last time that you and I were going to get together and and have a little bit of a discussion about research versus development. That is accurate. So let's do it. All right. Let's do it. All right. So I'll, I'll just start with a couple of comments and uh, rip apart anything that I say or, or share some different points of view. We're just kind of free flowing here. We're just sharing a few ideas, thoughts, and, and so on. And and you know, I guess that's a good place to start. I always like to, to give those listening at the very towards the very beginning of our of our discussion on these podcasts a tip that they can use. And and let's start with this. I hear people say to me all the time, John, John, that design control stuff. I I can't do that too early because it's going to to slow me down. I <laughs> I need to wait until I get to a certain point in my project before I start capturing design controls. I need to stay in research for as long as possible. So, David, what do you think about that? 
Yeah, I think that's interesting. The uh, the other the other addition to that that I'll say, and I, I face the same thing with clients and customers all the time. But I think the other thing that you say that you get is, "Hey, David, when do we start design controls? When is this design control stuff applicable?" And it, you know, one of the hilarious things about all this is the FDA itself. If you look at their design control guidance, right, their infamous design control guidance from 1997, one of the first things that it says in that guidance is quote unquote, some manufacturers have difficulty in determining when research ends and development begins. And, and when I read that, I was like, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, <laughs> no kidding. So I think, I think you're right. I think one of the things that, you know, companies struggle with is, you know, what does, what falls under design controls? What falls under kind of feasibility, proof of concept stuff? And I think the easiest way, you know, the philosophy that I think is the, the best way of approaching this is, you know, design control starts when you say it starts. Design control starts when your product is ready to be proven to the world, to the FDA, that it is under a state of control. So anything that's done prior to that, any sort of feasibility, proof of concept, vetting out the IP, vetting out the technology, you know, we're less concerned. Regulators are less concerned about that aspect versus having a vetted concept fully developed under the design control requirements in 21 CFR 2030, and then really validating it and getting it to market. So really, in short, your company determines when design control starts. And I think your comment about, you know, oh, we, ha we have to spend way too much time or we want to spend more time in research because we don't want to be subject to these design controls. I think that's the perspective only if you look at design controls as a paperwork exercise. If you look at design controls more as more of a needed part of your product development process, you know, you'd be surprised at how effective it can be at catching issues. I mean, I was just working with a company uh, a few weeks ago where, you know, one of our preliminary design reviews yielded the fact that we did not fully characterize the product with design inputs. So one of the things that we had to do after that design review was go back and say, you know, are there any standards that we're missing that might have some design input requirements that we need to test? And that was something that was yielded in a design review. And a yeah. lot of companies, unfortunately, treat that design review as a, oh, let's just check the box. We did our due diligence. <laughs> call it a day. So, yeah, I mean, long story short there, I, I agree. It's it's one of those things that, you know, is not very well defined within a lot of organizations. Yeah. As you said, uh, you know, your piece about that, I found myself nodding my head. Of course, this is an audio piece and not a visual piece. Right. The, the the design input comment that you offer there towards the tail end, I, I can't stress that enough to, to, to those who are developing medical devices. Your, the success of your product is going to live or die based on how well you've, you've documented and defined your design inputs. Yep. Yeah. I mean, there's no, no question about that. Absolutely. All right. So let's, you know, I want to pick on a couple of things that, that, uh, that you offered, uh, and your, your explanation. So, First thing I'd like to throw out is this scenario that I've come across quite a bit, and I'm sure you've come across quite a bit as well. And we'll we'll kind of start with this concept that design control, this this conventional wisdom that's out there. And by the way, conventional wisdom is nearly always wrong, but the conventional wisdom that's out there is that design controls are a large amount of paperwork and documentation and it's going to slow me down. Okay. Yep. So we'll start with that premise. And like how many times, David, have, have you said the word design control to an engineer or somebody that's involved in product development? 
and they cringe they like they're yeah they yeah. freak out they just like oh my gosh I can't do that it's too much time effort and energy so I'm going to start with that you know kind of now that I framed you I'm going to you know throw this thing at you I've worked with a lot of people who say have that mentality or that approach to design control they don't they don't they see it as this pain so they go through they design they iterate they don't always write anything down but they're focused maybe more on the prototyping piece and what have you and then they get really very far along they've got a lot of prints they've started machining or manufacturing and building all these prototypes and they get to the point where they're ready to do their formal testing at IEC testing or send it out for biocompatibility or, or what have you and then they start getting these re- results back and then they're like all right now we gotta we gotta hurry up and go do our design controls so what do you think about that yeah I think the easiest way to answer that is Design control, in a nutshell, is good engineering. So all of that work that you're describing, literally just tweaking the terminology and tweaking the approach to how you do things in a very slight sense, in a more controlled fashion, let's be honest, it's it's more controlled. However, all of that is good engineering. I mean, everything you just described, right? So testing, validation, creating testing plans, writing down what your product needs to do. Hint, hint, what your product needs to do is a requirement that is design input section of the design control requirements anyway. So I think in a nutshell, your good engineering principles, which you should be following as an organization anyway, I mean, honestly, it's just a matter of applying those engineering principles within the framework that the design controls regulation establishes. So instead of just kind of getting together with a team and saying, hey, does this uh, feature look good? Yeah, we're good to go. Are you good to go, Tom? Are you good to go, Dave? Yeah, let's move forward with it. Make that a design review. Make that something where you're sitting down with the team. You have actually an independent reviewer who's not really involved with the project to kind of give you that unbiased opinion. You document that, and you really come up with all those action items. You've just done a design review. You don't have to freak out about it. It's not something that's going to take 700 pages of documentation. It's really about, you know, how you apply those principles within the context of design control. So I really do think that one of the things that, you know, a lot of companies struggle with is, is just like you said, they, they hear the term, oh, we're entering the design control stage or, or everything we do moving forward is under design control. Why is that such a big deal? I mean, if you're doing your due diligence, if you're doing the right thing, you should be operating within that design control framework anyway. So, yeah, I mean, that's my, my initial reaction to that scenario. Okay. And I think the, the reason I'm going to speculate for a moment, I think Sometimes the reason why people freak out about entering design control too early is the root cause of that probably has to do with the processes and procedures that are in place at the at their company. I would right. speculate that those processes and procedures that define their design control process probably make it somewhat prohibitive to iterate and change after you're in a state of, quote, design control. Yeah, I know that, that's absolutely the case most of the time. And I think one of the other, you know, points to that is a lot of companies, they, they basically have this huge proof of concept stage, right? They have this, you know, feasibility. They're doing a bunch of testing on the technology. They're kind of vetting the technology. Then they start doing testing. And then literally, like you said, they get through a six or seven or eight month effort that's quote unquote proof of concept. And they're like, oh, you know what, we're going to just do a design verification test and call that our design controls process, and voila, we're done, right? So, again, it becomes a paperwork exercise, whereas if you, I mean, if you leverage, let's just take what the FDA's perspective is on this, right? So, they indicate clearly, again, in that same guidance that prototypes 
are not sufficient for testing under design controls, right? So when you're doing testing, as, an, as a quick example for, for your products, right, so you're doing design verification testing, you need to make sure that you're testing units that are developed under, quote-unquote, production equivalents, right? So uh, processes that are going to be commercial processes, the bomb has to be pretty similar to what the bomb is going to be commercially. Bomb, bill of material, just in case. Uh, yep, exactly. Okay. Bill, bill of materials. We don't we don't want to get in trouble with any uh, federal agencies here. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, those are the type of things that that's where that level of control is a little bit different in the development stage and your design control stage versus your you know research your R part. And I think it's very clear within within the guidance. I mean, there's literally something you know, within the uh, the FDA guidance that's called the concept documentation. And that could be those inputs from marketing, those inputs from clinical, and those are really used as the basis for preliminary design inputs, preliminary research into your product. Once those are, quote-unquote, hashed out and really nailed down and you have a product concept that you think is feasible, that's when you can really say, hey, we've proven this concept to ourselves, to the company, we're comfortable that this is a feasible technology. The market's there. All the business stuff is taken care of. Our actual product is feasible. The technology is sound. We want to develop this into a medical device. And that's the key difference. In that R phase, in that research phase, you're proving to yourself that this thing is going to work. The technology is good. The, the research that's, that went behind getting the technology you know, uh, created is good. When you're ready to turn that technology into a medical device, a quote-unquote medical device for Section 201H, that's when you really are ready to enter design controls. And that's not something that's clearly delineated. You know, often companies will have a proof-of-concept stage. They'll have a feasibility stage. And then once they end out, once they end that, you know, stage, they'll go into, you know, a quote-unquote definition or development stage where design controls kind of, you know, uh, starts getting implemented. And that truly is not something that I can answer, that, John, you can answer. It truly is dependent on the company and totally. how they approach the design development process. So, Totally. I mean, and I think just one point, and then, then I'll shift the discussion slightly. I know, David, in your explanation, you're referencing an FDA guidance document. just want to clarify, I'm pretty sure you're referring to the FDA's design control guidance document. It's a really good document. It really is. FDA yep. puts out a lot of guidance documents. Some of them, I'm just going to say, are better than others. And I think the design control guidance document has been around for a long time, but it is still yep. applicable to today, and it's really good. So I do encourage people to check that out. But everything mm-hmm. from an FDA perspective from on a design control topic, I just want to make sure this is also clear because we have people listening to this all over the world. The FDA view on design controls is consistent and in alignment with ISO 13485. And what's yep. even more important for, for everyone to realize is ISO 13485 has been published. A new version has been published just a few weeks ago. So the, there is a t- 2016 version of that. And from everything that I know and have read and learned about this new ISO 13485, it's even more aligned with the FDA's 21 CFR 820.30 design control regulations. I mean, it is, it is almost a mirror image. So I think that's important for people to realize. Yep. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about this word research and all the different 
permeations and connotations and all that sort of thing. I mean, the classic word is or description of the product development process is research and development. And and that word research, I think, is a key thing for people to kind of understand. I mean, and, and you, you said it very well just a few moments ago. What that means to each company is going to vary probably from, uh, quite a bit from one company to the next. Some people call it research. Some people call it feasibility. Some people call it proof of concept. There's a lot of words that are used to describe that research. And yeah. in my experience, I have really very seldom worked in a an environment or with a company where there was really pure research involved. Usually it was more uh, taking ideas and concepts and kind of refining those. And I don't know, is that is that research or, or is it something else? What do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, just practically speaking, you can see some organizations shifting away from calling their product development engineers R&D, right? So even at some of the large companies who I will not name, but you'll see some, you know, some re- some groups now just being called research or front-end research or, you know, concept research. And then the other folks that are involved more on the product development side in terms of uh, actually developing the product once it emerges out of this research activity into from a feasible from a feasible product into a fully functional, safe and effective medical device are being called technical development or product development or something else. So that traditional R&D role, which unfortunately still gets run around in Frost and Sullivan reports and all these other reports when you, you know, look at manufacturing versus R&D and all these different, um, you know, considerations, I think that's that's really shifting. I think people are really starting to understand that that research in the beginning is is truly just that. It's researching the IP, researching the concept. You know, for example, if you have a, you know, a lot of companies, I kind of, I kind of bucket development into two different categories. You have the evolutionary products where you might have a catheter, let's say, and the next generation is an upsized catheter, right? So that's a, that's an evolution. The uh, design change there is fairly insignificant. Um, you know, you might have just a, a few tests that you need to do to make sure that that increased size doesn't really, you know, change the performance of the product. And then you have those revolutionary changes where you have a brand new uh, piece of technology, a brand new a brand new IP that needs to be vetted before you can even consider plugging this into your product pipeline or portfolio. So if you look at those cases, there's definitely going to be a lot more of the R of that research in that second case, right? So you're going to have to have a team that's dedicated to vetting the concept. That can be anything from benchtop testing early on, um, you know, animal studies, really that preclinical piece that's going to demonstrate that this technology is the technology itself is really safe and effective. Once you demonstrate that that technology is safe and effective in that quote unquote research part of this of this uh, puzzle, that's when you can almost present that to the executive team and say, "Hey, look, this technology works, right? The core co- the core technology, the core competency being evaluated, it works. You know, the, this laser will not kill you. This laser actually degrades tissue accurately." Now it's taking that platform, that core technology, and sticking it into a medical device that's a regulated medical device. And that's where that D comes in, right? So I think that's right. where companies are starting to split that up because traditionally you used to have, I mean, like you, like you said, John, you used to have some people who were in R&D that were doing everything from going to look at, you know, going to do prototyping uh, at the very basic level, going out to meet with key opinion leaders and, and do a lot of that work. And they were following the product all the way through design transfer. 
And now oftentimes you'll have those two things, you know, separated within a company. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? You know, I don't know. I'd, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I had a stop uh, several years ago with a larger company, and we were starting to, at that time, make make that particular shift. And it was the perception was was interesting. The perception from a lot of engineers is they really wanted to be in that research uh, group because they felt as though it was uh, kind of I don't know more well engineering focused and a little bit more free form and a little bit more creative and maybe a little less structured from uh, what would be required from a documentation standpoint. And, you know, at that time, I was I was getting more involved with evaluating the overall uh, organization, the design control practices. And, and I was like, hey, guys, look, I, I understand that that's the perception that you have about research, but if that's the reason you're going there, then, then you're not doing the D side of, of our business any favors because if you're right. thinking that you're just going to go into research and just tinker and play and, and just be creative, you gotta, you gotta be focused on, on an outcome. And, and you, you, you know, articulated that fairly well. One of those outcomes is demonstrating that your concept or idea or, or what have you has merit. And you may do that, like you said, through some animal studies or other bench studies, preliminary bench studies that say, okay, we've, We've done some research and we've come up with a possible path forward for this particular uh, product or device or what have you. I think the other thing that's key to understand about that that R versus D piece is, in addition to to you know presenting sort of a business case, the if you're in research, that's an excellent time to really start identifying some key key pieces to to the the development side and those key pieces will be yeah. understanding from the from the view of an end user uh whether that be a doctor or a patient receiving this product what is important to them you know that that should be a, a major objective of of research whether they're separate groups or combined another key part of that should be you're really laying the foundation for for those design inputs I'm not suggesting that you exit research with a, a fully vetted, fleshed out list of design inputs, but, but I think you have to be very focused on some key deliverables as part of that, that research process. Now you can certainly be creative, but you need to come up with, you know, maybe three or four items that, that are documented, that are results oriented, that then can now be uh, smoothly transferred into your development side of, of the equation. No, and that's just, I mean, that's just it, right? So I think one of the, you brought up a good point. One of the things I see a lot of is, you know, the design inputs documentation at a company. Often it's kind of a mixed bag of user inputs, then marketing inputs, then, uh, you know, clinical inputs. You have regulatory, all these different functional groups. So one of the things that I that I like to see usually or that, that I usually recommend when I'm working with a group is I like to sequester kind of that pre what the FDA again calls concept documentation. These really high level inputs, and they actually use marketing as a good example. That hey, marketing will often say something, but that in itself is not a testable, verifiable design input requirement. So one of the things that I implement a lot when I'm you know working with design control uh, products or or processes is I like to have a separate you know catch all for all of these you know things that come out of research, like you said, John. 
And then from that, you know, uh, bucket of inputs from, again, regulatory marketing, all these different groups, you know, really create a user needs or a needs document that summarizes all those needs that becomes traceable to the more technical design input requirements, which are going to form the basis for your design. So really having that as a nice traceable process, it not only makes it practically simple, right, to start thinking about, okay, this is all the stuff we learned in research that we need to really consider while we're developing this into a medical device, but also from a design history file perspective, you start thinking about, okay, what am I going to submit to regulators? Am I going to submit everything that was in research? Probably not, because a lot of that was, again, just kind of throwing things against the wall to see if they stick. But some of those key decisions that were made in that research phase that will drive, you know, rationale or reasons for design inputs, those are some of the things that I like to usually see in a design history file. And that's really critical for submission, obviously. So, yeah, I think that's a really good point in terms of, you know, what comes out of research that's still being used for for design history files. I think that's kind of the, the summary of what I would say would be the case. All right. Well, David, I know we're just skimming the surface on the topic of R&D and how that applies to design control, the medical device product development. And, and I'm sure we'll have another session soon where we may go down a different branch or twist or turn on this and, and other related topics. So before we wrap up today, let everybody know a little bit about you and about Medgineering and, and where they can find out more information about, about how to get a hold of you. Sure. So um, we are a company called Medgineering, www.medgineering.com. That's M-E-D-G-I-N-E-E-R-I-N-G.com. Uh, we do a lot of work in the quality and regulatory space. Obviously, a lot of our work is in implementing new quality management systems, design controls, processes, risk management. Some of our key areas of expertise over the last few years has been in combination products. So working a lot with drug device delivery manufacturers, as well as other uh, combo products. And we've recently launched a, a platform, which is really cool, uh, called Quick Consults, www.myquickconsult.com. And essentially, it's an online consulting platform. So we pair up experts with um, you know companies, startups, or large companies alike, and really allows them to do the interaction, the uh, consulting engagement online. So it makes it a lot easier, uh, keeps the cost low, and really uh, allows a customer to have control over their consulting engagement by picking the person that they want, looking at references, all that is done online. So um, that's something that we, we're really excited about and hopefully can can help a lot of companies understand these design control processes and applying them to your organization. So, Very cool. Very cool. Well, David, again, thanks for being our guest on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is John Spear. If you're having some design control questions, uh, you can certainly contact David. You can also contact me in, in Greenlight.Guru. Greenlight.Guru has developed a software platform to help you manage not only your documents and records and your quality management system, but we've optimized a workflow that makes capturing, managing, maintaining all of your design control activities pretty simple and easy. And also incorporate all of your design and development activities and integrate that with an ISO 14971 risk management platform as well. This is John Spear. I'm the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.Guru, and this has been another episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast.